0: Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends, good afternoon. I'd like to thank, uh, I'd like to start by thanking uh, Dr. John Anthony and the National Council for the gracious invitation for me to speak to you today. First of all, and while I'm absolutely glad to speak to you, I'm also anxious to go back home because we've got a big celebration (laughs) soon with the World Cup and uh, well you're all invited. (laughs) I'll see you there. Uh, But before I start, I have to um, uh, start with the obligatory uh, conference uh, caveat that I must be clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of my government or any of its agencies. Rather, I am speaking today as a researcher, a defense fellow, and an observer of the impact of international relations and defense policies in the Middle East and North Africa, or MENA for short. And as an observer, there are two main areas of interest for me currently uh, that I would like to touch on briefly today before we delve deeper into the Q&A. First, I would like to talk about something Dr. Anthony mentioned the importance of small states and small state security in the modern MENA region, and how it affects and is affected by global trends and threats. It is vital to understand the growing role that small and medium states play today and will continue to be more prominently in the future. Small and medium states in the MENA region today have more effect on the global economy and defense than ever before whether in the global energy market and its impact, or agility and efficiency in military support operations, logistics, and humanitarian aid. Again, Dr. Anthony mentioned Qatar's role with its partners in the region and Central Command in the evacuation of the refugees and others from Afghanistan. The rapidly changing sphere of influence of small and medium states in the the MENA region and their impact on regional global security is of great interest, and it should be, in my opinion, observed and closely studied. The second area of interest, while it relates very uh, closely, I want to talk about it. It relates very closely to the first. Is the importance of the uh, policy-to-capability approach in procurement and in other areas, or P2C, and definitely not the other way around. Uh, how a modern and robust defence policy is needed to reform, to inform current capability, implementation, and future procurement and integration. Uh, It is vital, in my view, for security, that the MENA region have uh, developed sound policies that inform capabilities to avoid irrational procurement of the next generation capability for the sake of it, and uh, rather to to implement those capabilities for global good through supporting security sector reform and humanitarian aid. And those areas of development policies and doctrine, I believe, uh, are... uh, I believe that the United States uh, has a significant role to play in helping the MENA region advance in its own indigenous abilities to inform and formatting sound policies in the, uh, that lead to well-implemented and effective, ca- effective capabilities. Finally, I would like to leave you with two quotes that have informed me greatly about the views I've just laid out today the two points that I've made. The first is from His Highness Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, the Emir of the State of Qatar, who spoke this year at the session of the UN General Assembly when he said, and I quote, ''Small and medium-sized countries are in most need of stable rules regarding, or regulating rather, international relations, since dependency on the great powers should only be, uh, should only be the reason for failure to maintain communication between us. Each of us has a role to play, and what seems impossible today may become an achievable reality when there is a vision, and will, and good intentions. The second quote comes with a certain amount of personal pride and joy as an Arab. The Arabs, through Morocco, as I'm sure many of you know, were the first to recognize the United States of America as a sovereign nation. And when writing to the Sultan of Morocco, President George Washington said, in part, and I quote, Our soil is bountiful, our people industrious, and we have reason to flatter ourselves that we shall gradually become useful to our friends. In these areas that I've laid out and mentioned today, more than any other in the MENA region, and in these (coughs) volatile times, our friends can be very useful indeed, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much
1: All right well good afternoon, uh, Dr. Anthony, thanks for the introduction, and uh, I'm honored to speak before you this afternoon on uh, security cooperation uh, in the Middle East um, I used to be a security cooperation uh, recipient back uh, in Lebanon under the Syrian uh, uh, occupation in the late 70s and under the uh, Israeli occupation in the 80s. And uh, in the last 30 years I'm part of the security cooperation, being working the U.S. military and the and, and, uh, uh, Department of State for about 30 years and see it from the other side, from the actually uh, the operator versus from the receiving end of it. So, what is uh, security uh, uh, cooperation? Um, uh, of course, security cooperation has uh, long, has long been a vital tool of U.S. foreign policy, and it it's an important tool for the United States, especially, especially in the in the Middle East uh, region. Historically, this has been a source of strength for the United States. Uh, building a network of partners and allies and address common problems beyond which the United States may be able to accomplish uh, its mission alone. So security cooperation is therefore a way to ensure U.S. superiority in this era of strategic competition. So having said that, the traditional approach to today's security cooperation in the Middle East as a state-centric approach is no longer sufficient to meet its stated objectives uh, going forward i, I think uh, us security cooperation must account for a human security not just uh, you know a security cooperation or a security assistance uh, or government security human security and local ownership of such uh, uh, such uh, security cooperation uh, locals not just local government people and has to have some ownership of uh, this uh, security uh, must be uh, uh, receive it uh, kindly, and also a good, a good defense governance in terms of effectiveness, accountability uh, on both sides, on the U.S. side and on the other side. So over the last three decades, the U.S. policy toward the Middle East have changed, from dual, dual containment of Iraq and Iran under President Clinton, to regime change and democratization small d under President Bush. Uh, and from pivoting or rebalancing to Asia under, uh, under President Obama, and burden sharing and, and somewhat pay for security under President Trump. Uh, with this administration, the main focus on uh, security is what's called integrated uh, deterrence strategy under Biden, where both uh, United States and uh, partners and allies have to work together to uh, to uh, uh, project deterrence against uh, common common enemies. So while the U.S. policy have changed, like I mentioned, through administrations, there are certain uh, uh, constants in there throughout the times. So one of them is the defense posture in the Middle East uh, remaining constant. Uh, We still have uh, thousands of US forces present across uh, the region. We still have forces uh, right now in Syria, maybe about 900 members. In Kuwait, 13,000. In the UAE, about 3,500. Qatar, about 8,000. you got Saudi Arabia, uh, about 1,000. Bahrain, 5,000. Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, 3,000. And Libya, and so on. So uh, uh, with... with, uh, This posture account for about, uh, there's uh, different statistics there, but said about 50% of all global U.S. force posture, that's before the Ukraine-Russia war, Uh, recently we have an increase in posture for U.S. forces in Eastern Europe and also uh, in in Germany. Uh, So with such presence in the Middle East, uh, the U.S. defense strategy is not pivoting or rebalancing to Asia, I think, any time soon. Furthermore, we have witnessed uh, 20 years of, and trillions of US dollars in, uh, that spent in Afghanistan and Iraq in nation building, but ended up in unfavorable outcome for the United States and also for the local populations in both countries, Iraq and Afghanistan. And it seems that there, are, uh, there is a, uh, uh, more bad out outcome coming out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan as well. So the story has not ended there. The other constant over the year, this is on the U.S. side, also constant throughout the years of uh, uh, defense posture in the Middle East, is the high volume of defense transfers in terms of articles and services to the region. Such high volume of defense transfers to the Middle East supports the U.S. defense industrial base. So, there is some, this U.S. has benefit from this uh, uh, defense uh, transfer, like companies like Boeing's, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and, and the like. And also, as you see recently, some of the uh, defense advisory firms that are also benefiting from uh, this defense posture and defense cooperation. According to the, state, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. defense industry directly employs almost two million people across the United States. So there's a, 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 a job creation with it. These individuals and the companies they work for represent a key part of American entrepreneurship and innovation, also helping to maintain the United States' status as a world leader in the defense and aerospace sectors, and ensuring our armed forces maintain their military edge. So I mentioned a few constants, about what, so what have changed uh, then? Yeah, Russia is back in the Middle East, and re-established a naval base in northern Syria. They deployed over 3,000 of their proxy forces in Libya. It's called Wagner Group, they also increased their uh, troop presence in Western uh, Western Egypt on the borders uh, Egypt and uh, Libya, and also they secured uh, a a strong uh, voice of strong membership in OPEC Plus, uh, thus influencing oil market perhaps production and prices. That's for Russia, China. China also uh, moved in the region in the last uh, uh, decade or so. China built uh, their first overseas uh, naval base. It's about $600 million naval base uh, on the Red Sea in Djibouti. And Djibouti is uh, a member of the Arab League. It's one of the Arab countries. Uh, it's also uh, selling armed drones and uh, long range ballistic missiles in the region uh, armed drones and uh, long range ballistic missiles we did not we do not don't sell them in the our friends or in the region so china was uh, moved in and doing that It also introduced uh, its version of the 5 and uh, 6G telecommunication technologies, uh, which this will cause a a problem in interoperability between forces. So if a partner country in the Middle East uses uh, 6G technology, we, United States uh, military, we can't really talk to them directly. So we can't link U.S. system with a Chinese system. So that basically uh, narrowed down our, our engagement in the Middle East as well because of the telecommunication aspect of it. Iran is another country that increased their posture in the region. As we know, Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, is uh, is presently is present and also operating directly in four Arab countries. Uh, it's operating in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and it's also indirectly operating or uh, trying to hedge uh, their uh, politics in Bahrain, Kuwait, and Gaza. Iran has targeted U.S. troops numerous times to to cause harm in Iraq and Syria. They damaged oil refineries in northern and southern Saudi Arabia, indiscriminately shelled population centers to include the city of Riyadh and the holy city of Mecca. They also used drones against uh, civilian airports, Uh, Riyadh the King Khalid International Airport, and also uh, airports in the UAE and Kurdistan and Baghdad. And uh, also used it against flagships around their regional bodies of water, uh, to include flag, uh, Israeli ships, European flagships. Furthermore, Iran, as we know now, is the only country, the only foreign country in the world that is overtly supporting Russia in its war against the Ukraine. Additionally, Russia and China are competing. Hard for the emerging defense markets throughout the Middle East region, offering sufficient near-high technologies and capabilities to counter regional and local threats, with time to no political strings attached, with little uh, to no political strings attached. Regional countries are seeking more than co-production, like the past, or co-development between the United States and, the, uh, and the, uh, partner countries. They are aiming to include, to uh, incubate, an indigenous military manufacturing industry, with further ambitions for uh, uh, exporting defense, defense articles as well. So conventional ammunition, uh, unmanned aerial systems, land, maritime vehicles, aircraft, spare parts are within reach for local productions in, in the Middle East, especially in the Gulf countries, especially in the UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. For instance, by 2030, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is planning to build uh, at least four manufacturing plants for helicopters and unmanned aerial systems. And also Qatar is in a, a joint venture with the U.S. company also to produce an uh, unmanned aerial system. Uh, for or export as well. So they're moving forward with the United States, or or without the United States. So the so the cost of uh, further deterioration of U.S. defense policy in the Middle East is is clear. So to thrive and to regain the trust and confidence of the governors and the governed in the Middle East, the U.S. the U.S. government should retool its security cooperation. Um, To account, like I mentioned earlier, for human security, local ownership, and good governance, good defense governance on both sides. So, U.S. also has to have that, including our uh, friends and allies. Otherwise, the U.S. military access to local security forces and emerging defense markets will diminish, allowing other unfavorable to the unfavorable uh, competitors to move in. I'll end it with this uh, quote from the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, General Mattis. Uh, he sums it up by saying, uh, nations with allies thrive. Nations without allies wither. Well, thank you for listening.
2: All right. well,
3: it's an honor to uh, Twice in one day at the conference, and if you don't behave, they'll have me speak a third time. Uh, and uh, uh, the number of interns I brought with me has increased, so interns, raise your hands. These are my NISA interns, and once again we're not allowed to keep them past December by federal law. Uh, I, I mention them because quite frankly I'm frightened of them. Um, they are so talented, so um, we lose them in December, and if you have an opportunity for employment or that, do that. I'm going to speak about military developments in light of the Ukrainian war, but I'm not going to talk about weaponry too much, I'm going to talk mostly about uh, the impact the on the perceptions of military development in the Middle East because I think it's a neglected topic. We've got the uh, ability to ask questions, so please if you want to talk about uh, weapons or whatever, uh, put those down on the questions and we'll get to this. And once again, like Sheikh Nawaf, uh, like uh, Colonel Dohuk, uh, I do not speak for the US government. So. Uh, This is the US model of force development or military capacity building. Um, We in the United States call it the um, best military practices for force development because we are an egocentric people Um, and so if it is American we consider it best. Um, The joke at NATO was uh, how many Americans does it take to screw in a light bulb? The answer is one. We hold it up and the world revolves around us. When people talk about military capacity, they talk almost entirely about materiel, about equipment and machinery, but what we're seeing is that these other things, doctrine, organization, training, and particularly leadership and education, are, uh, if anything, more important than materiel, and of course the Ukrainian war has shown uh, a force with an overwhelming advantage in materiel uh, uh, not achieving its goals and in some aspects uh, being defeated. So this is the pre-war general assessment of Arab militaries as a whole, where they're good and where they're not so good. And, uh, you know, as with anything so broad, there's a lot to argue about here. There are pockets of excellence, the Royal Saudi Air Defense Forces, who have more... Ballistic missile intercepts than the United States Army, um, the uh, Jordanian special forces. You know there are elements of it, but in general, I think that most people would agree, most uh, military observers, if you get them away from an official forum, that doctrine is pretty much non-existent uh, among Arab militaries, except if it is translated from English, either the UK, the United States, or uh, you know some of the older. Uh, th- there's no more lingering Russian doctrine. That doesn't exist. Organization, similarly, is a downfall. Uh, and in part, it's because a lot of these forces are not organized um, to uh, win wars. They're organized for regime preservation. Mm-hmm. So you see formations like the 4th Armored Division in Syria, with which Colonel De Hook is familiar in his past life. Um, that w- is the most capable, or at least was the most capable, uh, fighting formation in the Syrian army. Now it's the most efficient distributor of Captagon in the world. Um, But it did not take part in the 73 War, uh, even though there was a tank battle going on on the Golan Heights, and it probably could have made the difference. But it was needed to preserve the Assad family rule in Damascus. So it remained in Damascus, and the Golan Heights was lost to Israel. Materiel is a something that uh, most Arab militaries have focused on. They have acquired modern materiel, but uh, and they've acquired the ability to field it, and they've acquired the ability to maintain it. Um, in most instances, and as I said particularly when you look at the Royal Saudi Air Defense Forces, which I would argue is the most efficient um, uh, component of any Ar- Arab military, or any military in the Middle East, um, they actually uh, operate Patriot at rates over and above what the US Army is capable of doing. Leadership and education is uh, moving up from, albeit, a relatively low standard, moving away from um, Egyptian standards of pedagogy, which are based, in turn, on French standards. It's funny how everything bad in the world always comes back to the French. Uh, And what we're seeing is uh, an immense uh, effort to um, uh, modernize and uh, I've been involved deeply with uh, efforts at the uh, um, Saudi Arabia National Defense University and the UAE National Defense University which are moving up. We're seeing this across the region. Uh, My colleagues who were here earlier this morning are uh, en route next week to uh, a few other countries in the region to do that. And then personnel is always a problem in large part because promotion is not uh, always based on merit or accomplishment. And uh, it's seen as uh, more of an entitlement than a reward for promotion. So that was before the Ukraine-Russian War. Whoops, wrong wrong clicker, sorry. Um, now if we look at Russia and what was thought of Russia before the war, it was thought that Russia had good doctrine, good organization. Their battalion combat teams were viewed as a model for Western armies because, in theory, they were small, flexible, uh, capable of self-sustainment and support, and capable of operating independently at multiple objectives at the same time. Uh, and of course their materiel was considered to be good, particularly electronic warfare, which uh, I had considered to be among the best in the world and quite frankly my greatest surprise from the um, Ukraine-Russian war has been the ineffectiveness of Russian electronic warfare. And I think in large part that's because it was so effective that not only when it was employed it jam all Ukrainian communications. It also jammed all Russian communications. And so the uh, high command told them to knock it off, and then they were left near uh, area Leadership and education was poor uh, and because of corruption, uh, which we knew that uh, senior officer appointments were based on uh, corruption and based on connections. And uh, the personnel quality we knew was uh, poor. Uh, even though the Russian army had ostensibly been professionalized, uh, that was more akin to the 1990 1990- privatization of businesses. It wasn't a true professionalization. It basically just meant that people were being paid more. Now what we saw in the aftermath of the Ukrainian war is across the board. Uh, all these assumptions that people like me thought we knew, and I thought the war would be over on Russia's terms in three weeks. Those proved that the Russian forces were far worse than we thought they would be, and that there were cascading failures. A failure in one aspect led to a failure in another. So this is a very famous uh, picture. This, this is probably one of the most photographed vehicles of the Ukraine-Russian war. It's an S-1 Panzer air defense system. In the wake of the attack. Attack, the Russians said, "This is the solution. This would have solved abcake It has its own integrated radar. It has missiles. It has guns. It shoots down stuff. It's a, it's on a truck. You can move it anywhere. This is what you need." And um, the UAE, which can afford to buy anything, bought Panzer. So this Panzer was recovered by the Ukrainian forces because it was so poorly maintained uh, that basically, and the leadership didn't want an accident happen, so it was never moved. They would not allow the soldiers to move it because they were afraid they would ding it, or somehow damage it. And um, it has adjustable pressure tires, and if you don't move those, the tires rot out, and the tires were inferior. The commander of them was paid to buy Michelin tires, he bought Chinese tires at a considerable lower price and pocketed the difference and so when they took it off-road and pressed the button to increase the air pressure so it could do it, all the tires blew out and this 26 million dollar air defense system was abandoned where it was recovered. So cascading failures in personnel and leadership, corruption, inability to trust and or empower subordinates, uh, negated what should have been a material success. Uh, the Ukrainians, on the other hand, are pretty much positive across the board. I gave them a smaller up arrow for material, because right now the greatest provider of tanks to the Ukrainian armed forces is the Russian armed forces. Um, you know, but there there are significant um, you know things. For example, the HIMARS missile, of course, which is uh, rapidly turning out to be the sexy weapon of the war the way patriot was out of the 1989 Gulf War. Um, What we're finding increasingly is that doctrine, training, and leadership is the big difference, and that is as the result of a sustained Western effort since the 2014 initial invasion of Ukraine, that the Ukrainian forces went from basically a poor copy of the Russian armed forces into a force that was using Western doctrine, Western organization, Western principles of leadership. And then, in my mind, the key factor is personnel, which is, quite frankly, you have motivated soldiers who know exactly what they're fighting for, have a good idea of what the objective is, and do not need detailed order orders. To to go out and achieve uh, tactical goals and initiatives. And this leads to a virtuous cycle of success. And there are, of course, technical innovations you see here. A $1,000 drone, which is modified with a 3D printed fins that cost about $3, and a 60 millimeter mortar round, which costs about $120. And this is capable of having the same effect as a uh, uh, you know, accurate attack that you would expect from a very very good F-15 or MiG-30 fighter. So uh, we're finding that the virtuous cycle, aside from material, is what's important. So when we look at Arab armies um, or armies in the region, what we're finding is now an emphasis. Hopefully, the lessons learned of the war is that the material advantages, which have been the focus of Middle East armies for so many years, uh, that is not as significant as what was thought. The Ukrainian army is inferior to the Russian army in material. it's inferior to the Russian army in numbers, but the uh, reform of the personnel system and the development of suitable doctrine, not American doctrine, not British doctrine, not French doctrine, but suitable doctrine, um, combined with empowered, educated leadership and a motivated personnel base has proven to be more decisive on the modern battlefield than materiel. And uh, that is a message which will be very difficult to permeate into um, regional militaries because it will require the um, leaving behind of years of bad habits, quite frankly. But hopefully the success on the battlefield will speak for itself and we're on the era of a new era of both more effective and surprisingly more cost-effective defense. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and welcome your most difficult questions.
2: Mm-hmm. Do we have cards? Yes, uh, thank you uh, all three uh, speakers. Mm-hmm. A few questions have arisen uh, from the uh, <coughs> audience there, and one has to do with this uh, uh, they, the trust involved in defense cooperation. Uh, in the aftermath of the liberation of Kuwait in 1991, several uh, defense cooperation agreements were signed, one with uh, Qatar, one with uh, Kuwait, one with Bahrain, one with uh, Qatar, and another one delayed with, with the Emirates. We had an older one uh, with the Sultanate of Oman, uh, and, and older by 10 years of access to Oman's facilities provided Oman, Uh, provided the authorization and with Saudi Arabia you can say we didn't need one that we had a relationship at the defense cooperation level greater than that of all of the other defense cooperations combined. Uh, But ponder the following that uh, since the late 1940s there have been those in the eastern Mediterranean who have shuddered at the thought that, that there could be one day where the United States favorite bride in the region would be Saudi Arabia and not this small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And so there have been divisions uh, within that country where there are those who are grateful for what Saudi Arabia has done to uh, contribute to regional uh, security, stability, uh, peace, and the prospects for prosperity. Uh, Because uh, this has been done at uh, somebody else's expense than theirs. Uh, Military expense, monetary expense, physical experience. But then there are others that realize, my gosh, we can't compete. There's only one of us and there are 22 Arab countries there. And uh, we have no real strategic geographic uh, space. You don't have to fly over us, run through us, jog through us, bicycle uh, through us, or sail through us to get to anywhere of global geopolitical strategic importance. But no, you cannot avoid uh, the the Arab region itself in terms of its airspace, its coastal territories, and and flying over uh, its its land uh, area mass as well. And this scares the daylights out of us because we cannot change this aspect of geography. So it's in our interest that the United States back off from this uh, particular arrangement in the Arab Eastern uh, region there. And how do we do that? Well, we make the United States angry uh, with those countries, disappointed with those countries. And uh, we realize we can't compete with them uh, monetarily or financially or oil or gas-wise. so we have to do what we can. We can put them on the defensive, keep them on the back of their feet there, keep them on the apologetics, keep them explaining themselves, and that takes all the air and the energy some out of some of the serious, otherwise what would be serious uh, discussions on matters of, of, of life and death. So that's ongoing, and that's what's behind those who want to see a distance place in this relationship, because in a defense relationship, it's a relationship of essential trust, existential trust, on security of life and death. And two countries that work together that make a difference on life and death, that each helps the other to survive, they begin to think, my goodness, look what we achieve. What else can we do? And then that leads to one other thing, further development of intelligence exchange and mutuality of interoperability, force development, uh, education and training, and leadership and sharing and the like. There's no way that one country that's not part of this framework uh, can compete. And so they thought of some negative Machiavellian is, well, let's make sure that that one country uh, dislikes the United States, that it has a lot of people that want to criticize the United States, that want to back off from the United States, want to have nothing to do with the United States. And if that doesn't uh, work, let's see what we can uh, do with those countries. Let's see. How can we make them angry at us, uh, the United States? How can we make them back off from America? Well, we can. Let's see. We can raise the expectations and say, you know, we've got this particular equipment, this technology, this advanced also. why don't you ask for it? We can probably put you at the head of the queue, and then we say, no, you, you it's a no-brainer. You'll you'll get it, no for sure. And so then the request is made. And then it's denied, and the people who made that request are humiliated, they're on the defensive, they're called fools, they're called naive, they're rendered to the sidelines there. And that's seen as a gain by those who want to keep this relationship apart, not as part of usness of one, of water, as such. So, those games are continuously played and they're being played at the present time. Uh, If it were a level playing field, no, you wouldn't have uh, high ranking senators, chairman of this committee and that committee, uh, arguing for a pause, uh, a punitive action, or or delay, or reassessment, reconsideration. You don't do this between uh, allies that have a relationship of trust and the kind of achievements and record of achievements and accomplishments that we and some of our partners uh, have achieved. Uh, So that's a game that's going on. The media won't touch it and uh, politicians won't come near it either. So, that's um, a question on how, how can we deal with that? Uh, maybe it's wrong to ask uh, Pref- uh, Doctor, uh, uh, Professor DeRoche, because he's still a, part, a member of a government and his career would be killed if he were to speak frankly, or as frankly as I'm speaking here. Uh, and so, I'm, I'm cutting him some slack on this. But maybe um, uh, Colonel Da Hook, retired Da Hook, would be willing to comment on this. Uh, maybe. Uh, namar uh, feltthani Sheikh Namar feltthani would comment uh, either one of you be willing to comment on this challenge this well, implication of this for policy yes. concerns.
3: so so the unit of trust is uh, <laughs> we call it marriage and uh, basically we're uh, 3D printing marriage and then we're going to distribute those to uh, our partners and that way once we have enough of them we'll have trust. Now trust, trust is uh, uh, an intangible, it takes a long patient time to uh, bring up, uh, to build up and it can be easily dispelled in a, in a moment. Now the, the main thing about trust though is that it's a psychological construct and I think that people have to realize that Um, uh, trust is situational. And so the question is um, you have to have a great amount of both self-awareness and awareness of your partner if you're really going to be in a position where you can say a position of trust exercises itself. So uh, when the Houthis fired missiles at Abu Dhabi, um, the Emiratis expected the United States to destroy Controlled areas of Yemen, mm-hmm. and when we didn't, they said, "Well, you know, there's a f- we can't trust you." I would argue that they have misjudged the situation and misjudged the um, capabilities and the willingness of their partner. So, so I think that, um, honestly, to speak of trust without speaking of each specific circumstance and ability is is to um, commit policy malpractice. Mm, great response, thank you,
2: Colonel Dahul.
1: I, I think I mean, from a military perspective, uh, trust uh, um, it could apply to exchange of uh, intelligence. I mean, how do we... How do we trust a company or a country X that is going to take this intelligence and keep it? And if a country is at war, uh, if they act on this intelligence, whatever they do with it, it might uh, implicate the United States in whatever they uh, they do. Um, so, the um, uh, United States has a, a system of how how to uh, uh, bifurcate or divide this trust based on uh, the level of cooperation between uh, countries. Obviously, the uh, country. Like uh, uh, United Kingdom, Canada, and, uh, New Zealand, uh, Australia, those are the call-, we call them the Five Eyes. They have a special. Uh, uh- trust in them that we can we, we exchange a lot of information at many levels uh, and then you have different tiers of uh, different tiers uh, of trust uh, but in, in again in uh, this is uh, sometimes this trust it depends uh, uh, it depends on politics uh, sometimes the the politics are line up the uh, uh, the uh, the threat is uh, is uh, uh, the same or uh, for example when uh, we do a, a, a coalition operation we did the counter ISIS campaign in uh, in northern Iraq, before the campaign started, the United States wants a uh, an Arab country or uh, to be part of the coalition. And the first uh, person they reached to first country was Kingdom Saudi Arabia. So they brought Saudi Arabia, and, and that time it was a selfish part on behalf of the United States because they know if Saudi Arabia uh, joined the counter ISIS coalition, the rest of the Gulf and more Arab countries will uh, like Jordan, and other will will come, and that's what what happened. And the other reason for bringing that uh, also Saudi Arabia into the coalition is uh, you don't want to have uh, uh, the coalition look like a Western coalition. Here we go again, West versus East. And so we we are on another crusade. Just like uh, when President Bush said we are on a a crusade, they don't want this to be another crusade against the ISIS or the Sunni element. So also trust is uh, relevant. Again, back to it depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's uh, many uh, ways to look at it.
0: Okay. I think uh, for the GCC, probably uh, for the person who asked the question specifically, trust could be distilled in a actionable or real-world uh, manifestation as partnership.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the elements of partnership that GCC nations have shown and cooperated with the US has been um, reliability uh, throughout, uh, level-headedness throughout, and proven through the third element, which is time. So, time and time again has shown the level-headedness and reliability of GCC nations, either in a unified or individual manner with the United States. That proves the uh, value of partnership, which is, in my view, the real-world manifestation of that trust.
2: Super. Okay. Can we get to the questions? Yes. One of the aspects of partnership that Chek just mentioned, you can, the analogy could be a marriage. And um, the marriage between the United States and a number of its Arab uh, friends, allies, and strategic partners has just been that, uh, a Catholic marriage, if you will. But like any marriage, there are ups and downs in a long-lasting uh, uh, marital relationship. But then there are those that, that don't work out. Uh, and that don't work out first and foremost because of trust. One side sees the other cheating on the other, or inadequate uh, to the other, or not living up to the promises that the other made at the beginning of that particular partnership. So there's friction, and then there's reluctance, and there are delays, and there are those who said, yes, we'll get around to it, or oh, thank you, but no thank you, all the best, keep in touch. Um, it's, a, it's been a great relationship. Uh, there's that aspect at at play here. Uh, There is friction in the relationship. There are those who say that we are not worthy of trust uh, because of what Iran has been able to get away with. Not just in the case of Yemen but also in the case of, of Iraq. Imagine any of us could get into a Jeep now or a Land Rover and drive all the way from Tehran to Beirut without a visa without really being stopped or seriously delayed in any water uh, between Tehran and the eastern Mediterranean. This has not happened for several thousand years. If you're an Iranian, again, put yourself empathetically in the shoes of an Iranian. All this talk about, well, we're going to stay in Syria until the last Iranian leaves. Or we're going to curb Iran's influence in Iraq. Uh, Lebanon can only be brought back and made whole again if the Lebanese factor with Hezbollah can be reduced to minuscule influence on the sidelines. All of this, to me, layperson here, army veteran though, is, is B.S. From an Iranian's perspective, Iranians are on a roll and a run and for reasons that uh, Colonel DeRose alluded to earlier this morning they don't have to win they can just disrupt and they can disrupt for $100 he mentioned in terms of the uh, add on to to one of the drones They can do this by embarrassing the American aerospace and defense industry that sells billions to the region and yet cannot effectively defend against a several hundred dollar weapon that comes and attacks the nerve center of the global uh, energy uh, industry that fuels the economies of every single country on on a big and small, old and new, and uh, everything in between. Uh, So this partnership aspect when it's being frayed needs to be taken seriously and favorable into consideration and raised up on the inbox and the priority list there of do not let it go from being frayed to separation. And there are calls for separation now. This is dangerous talk. This is loose talk. This is political talk at a political season. We're less than two weeks away from a national election in my country uh, that can be fraught with implications. And we're mindful through the rearview mirror of history of 1956. In the late October, early November period, this was when the Soviet Union rolled into Budapest. After all of our saying to the Hungarians, all you need to do is rise up. Be freedom fighters. We'll be with you. We've got your back. They did. We did nothing. And it is because we were distracted nationally, politically, rent and wrought domestically and divided. And guess what else happened? France invaded Egypt that same week. Great Britain invaded Egypt that same week. Israel invaded Egypt that same week and shut the Suez Canal to benefit from one country, Israel, but to the disadvantage of the entire rest of the world that had its shipments on the naval highways to go around the Cape of Good Hope rather than through the Suez Canal and it stayed shut for the better part of a year. And again, again in June 67, when the Israelis again invaded Egypt and the canal stayed shut for eight years. And of course, the Israeli generals said, Oh, that's the greatest anti tank ditch one could ask for or imagine. Well, for one country to gain and 200 others to be disadvantaged. Uh, doesn't deserve any comment beyond the implications of that which was severe and serious and mustn't be allowed to occur again. Um, Colonel DeRoche, you had a question that you asked. Well, we have questions here, so if it's all right with you, I'd like
3: to take the... We have quite a few audience questions. Okay. Reemphasizing that all three panelists do not speak for their government, we have the first question which is for the whole panel. I'll I'll ask, since we're out of time, this is going to be the lightning round with uh, short answers. Will any Arab country ever get the U.S. F-35 plane? Do you want to take a whack at that first, Shay? Since
0: since it's the lightning round, I don't know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know? Okay, Abbas? It depends. Depends. Okay, my answer is based on current demographic trends. The first Arab country to get the Joint 35 will be Israel. All right. Next. Um, the, the, the short, the serious, the serious answer is the the technology uh, requires a lot more safeguarding. But you know, technology moves forward. Uh, you know, the Norden bomb site was considered to be a, you know great matter of state in World War II. By 1953, you could buy one and display it in a high school auditorium. So, uh, stealth has its own special requirements, and uh, quite frankly um, even, you know, Turkey is not an Arab state and it ran amok of that and we're finding other countries having problems let as let well. Let me
1: add one more thing. Sure. If, if, you're, if your enemy is your next-door neighbor and within a, within reach, I think F-35 in your inventory is kind of overkill. F-35 is designed to project forces way beyond your national yeah. uh, territorial integrities in a stealth mode. Uh, so most of the Countries in the in the in the region, they're looking for defensive weapons more than just uh, you know uh, weapons to project and uh, and conduct wars outside their territorial territorial integrity.
3: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Next question. We'll go with you this time. You're going to have to give us a proper answer. Um, <laughs> is there a realistic chance of Arab self-reliance in defense? Is is reform likely to work?
0: Well, it, it, it actually it depends. Uh, but as I mentioned in in uh, my opening remarks, it should start with uh, clear policies, without clear policies that inform, The procurement of capabilities, the formations of doctrine, as you mentioned, Dave, as uh, uh, that would inform the way militaries work together in a joint uh, or um, uh, combined uh, theater, uh, it is difficult to see how uh, these reforms could happen. Now, there are many countries in the Arab and uh, you know, the Middle East and North Africa that have various degrees of reforms. Uh, we're not going to get into the details of that, but more is needed, and I don't think we're, we're, we're there yet.
1: Excellent. Abbas. Well, uh, transformations and reform is an ongoing thing. Even within the United States uh, government, we're always uh, learning and bring. I mean, uh, from lessons learned from conflicts and from somebody else. Uh, so I don't think the uh, the, th- uh, the reason for that is the uh, threat is always evolving. And as uh, as long as the threat is evolving, regardless how much you transform or reform, you're going to continue doing that to uh, to mirror the threat. I mean, ideally, like the United States would like to predict the future threat, the future force years down the road or 20 years down the road, but it's all all, uh, guessing. Uh, But uh, as long as you have a a force uh, that is uh, loyal to to the country and they're uh, they're serving with purpose, I think regardless of the threat out there, you'll be able to uh, somewhat uh, at least stop it uh, initially to figure out what else you need to do or who you need to call to help you if needed.
3: Those are both perfect answers, I cannot add anything to that. Next question from Abdulaziz al a friend from Reconnaissance Research. Are we prepared for a post Khomeini Iran, uh, an Iran ruled, and he thinks that may be an Iran ruled directly by the Revolutionary Guard. Are we prepared for a, for a post Khomeini Iran? I'm sorry. So I
0: think the question should be are we prepared for a, for the current situation that is evolving? Um, We cannot see uh, the end state of a a deal with Iran or a no deal with Iran. That is unclear. I think understanding the current situation before jumping to conclusions that Iran will you know, uh, have a change in in uh, its uh, hierarchy structure anytime soon, uh, unless uh, Iran itself or the people of Iran, or jointly with its neighbors, find a way for Iran to uh, behave differently, okay. or continue to behave as it is. Uh, that will definitely have a reflect on the government of Iran moving forward, whether under the current regime or any other
1: regime. Okay. I mean I agree, um, um, uh, Iran has to change to become uh, at least to play with uh, as a good neighbor for, their, uh, for in the, in the region. Um, the thing is, uh, and the question also is not for Iran, the question is for the neighboring countries including the United States, uh, what would what is our role when Iran changes? How are you going to deal with it?
2: Good, yeah. good point. David, so, if I can ask, add, add to that a brief thing. How dare I, you? I have been fortunate enough to be invited to all of the GCC's uh, ministerial and heads of state summits there and in the communique of each and every one of them from the beginning in 1981 in May has been the uh, emphatic emphasis on non-intrusion in the domestic affairs of other countries. And here you've had since 1979 Iran with the only constitution, to my knowledge, in the world that obligates the government to expand its revolution uh, to the uh, nearby areas. The nearby areas are the GCC countries. Plus, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan to the east, but uh, Iraq, Turkey uh, to the west, and to the south, uh, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. Uh, You have this kind of a situation that, um, until it's uh, dropped from the agenda uh, of the Iranian national security uh, objectives, it is difficult to Uh, conceive of its neighboring countries being other than alarmed, threatened, insecure, in need of assistance. Uh, None of them are naive enough to think that they can handle Iran alone. Iran is Pushing 100 million now, the six GCC countries 25 million, Iraq 25, 30, 30 million now. The two, uh, the seven combined are, are barely half of what Iran is. So no one is naive about the the demographic manpower uh, aspect about it. So plan B is to align one's strategic interests with other powers that are greater powers whose interests align more nearly with your own, and therein lies the nexus of the partnership. Uh, between Qatar, between the rest of the GCC countries, and the United States, where the interests are indeed aligned at the present time. Whether they will remain so, depends a lot on the policies of both. Okay, good. I would just say that the
3: the three military uh, members of the panelists reflect a professional bias. So, uh, a threat is determined by capabilities and intentions. Uh, military folks inherently focus on capabilities because they say we can't accurately gauge the intentions. Sometimes diplomats and intelligence experts will speak of the intentions. So, I think that all three of us have focused on the intentions and say you have to do that. And I, I would suggest that reflects a professional bias. So, you know. Want a different answer? Don't ask a soldier. Um, uh, Next question, is integrated air and missile defense sufficient to, to maintain security and superiority over the Iranian threat for the Gulf, or are offensive missile and bomb reserves necessary as a deterrent? Abbas? Uh, I
1: don't think it's um, it's sufficient. I mean, the best way to counter um, um, any um, like uh, incoming missiles or UAV is to hit it at the source before before they even launch. Uh, and that's mainly with, with uh, intelligence to figure out uh, intentions and uh, perhaps even before before that to try to interdict some of the supplies in terms of parts and stuff, uh, technology that comes to uh, Houthis or, or to Iran. And uh, the current threat. Uh, uh, now is not uh, long-range missiles where you need THAAD and you need uh, uh, Patriot missiles. It's just all this uh, uh, off-the-shelf uh, type uh, um, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles like the one you showed in the picture where you just have an unmanned aerial vehicle and you put a, uh, artillery round on it and de- deliver it and they just drop it. Let the gravity f- uh, use uh, uh, takes its hold and bring it right down on the target. So it's actually more accurate than an artillery round. Because because you need to fire forward observers, and you have to correct. Uh, so those inter, uh, integrated air and defense missiles are good if we expect in Russia or uh, uh, or China or some, try to uh, use some of their uh, long-range missiles. Uh, but it's, it's it is needed. It's, uh, it it is also shows that uh, at, at a minimum it'll provide you with early warning. So that's something part of the, the you know before you even destroy any incoming missile or uh, thing that early warning is important for all participating countries. So once you have that warning, whether it's a small uh, rocket or a small UAV, or whatever it is, it uh, gives uh, leadership time to, uh, to react and figure out how they want to intercept uh, this uh, this threat. And there's many ways to do so. So there's early warning uh, part of it, uh, but not 100% uh, so, uh, sufficient. necessary but not sufficient. Shake that
0: While I'm not an air defense expert, I just want to touch on a on another subject, because I'm seeing a lot of questions going into the operational side of things. I think we have to step back and look at the bigger picture for a second. Iran as a state is not going anywhere. As a country, it's physically there, it's a neighbor. Uh, I think people of the Gulf should find peaceful manners before you know, jumping towards the inevitability in their minds, or in many minds, that the conflict will and shall, and in some cases, and some people may view, must happen. Uh, so I think we should always keep a broader mind and, and thought towards Iran as a neighbour, peaceful solution should be the first uh, option, and uh, for those who've never tried war and have never wanted to see death, shouldn't jump uh, too fast to that inevitability. If that would be an inevitability.
3: Well, oh, that's wisdom indeed. I mean, the, the most efficient defense is to uh, convert your enemies into friends. Um, the United States, of course, fought three wars with Canada, and uh, only to see them now continue to subvert us from within. But we have, <laughs> but we have an undefended border. Uh, uh, I, let me let me just speak technically about the nature of defense. So, um, first off, uh, the general public miss understands the nature of missile defense. They think it is a dome that covers a wide area. Missile defenses are point defenses. And they have a very limited uh, ability. Uh, there's a very limited area you can cover. And so um, if you do not have some sort of offensive deterrent, if you do not attack them at the point, you will leave a large portion of your your terrain exposed. Um, for a relatively short compact place like Israel you can actually defend it fairly effectively but for most countries you cannot. Um, The second point is there's an economic factor here. Uh, Patriot Pac-2 GEMS-T missile costs 4.3 million dollars each and uh, 4.3 million dollars each and standard practice in advanced air forces is to fire two missiles at each incoming target. Um, A Zulfagar missile costs less than hundred thousand dollars so you have an uneconomical rate of change. So they're uh, just on economy and in terms of protecting all of your country, it makes sense that you have to integrate some form of of a strike capability against launch points and uh, targeting points in order to have that. Next question. What is the U.S. national military strategy uh, with Saudi, or this could apply to other countries as well, modernizing its military to China? Is there a military strategy to counter Chinese influence in partner nation militaries? I don't think we'll ask you to answer this one. isn't I
0: don't even know the answer.
3: <laughs> Good. And that's why. I want Wanted to spare you the embarrassment. Um, Abbas, you want to take a whack at that?
1: Well, one uh, one way to counter China is to uh, stay engaged with uh, our partner nations and um, and um, and basically try to. Um, um, supply them with uh, with U.S. equipment. I mean, if the, if the uh, country acts uh, uh, according to their threat, according to their uh, doctrine, they need a, a, a special capability, and if the United States says, well, yeah, we have this capability, but you can't have it, but China has it, or Russia has it, there, there's a possibility they might do something like that. Uh, uh, I mean, in the case of the Gulf nations, especially Saudi Arabia, I mean, this bond between the United States and Saudi Arabia is, is going to stay for a long time. Time, especially on the defense side, both needs each other from uh, from a defense posture. I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia provides a a, a very strategic location in the world. I mean, uh, uh, for defense posture. Even if you are in the future, there's any kind of uh, uh, deterrence or countering China, this is this is a launching point for for United States. Uh, So the the other thing is just enhance uh, the more you work with with your friends, the less you keep China away. I mean, in the in African continent. Uh, for a while uh, the Afri- Africa Africa the African command was one of the missions is to counter China and make sure that the Chinese are not in in, uh, in Africa and now they're already all over Africa now the mission is not to counter China the mission is to sit with China along with the partner nations to see to, get, uh, to work together in, uh, in Africa uh, so uh, it''s, it's uh, there's no uh, it depends on, on, on each country but uh, uh, you have to uh, more, more partnership with countries and more defense cooperation and more political uh, political dialogue with them uh, to counter
2: China. David, can I comment briefly on this? Yes, with regard to the China aspect, I remember being in the region in uh, March of 1987 where Saudi Arabia uh, had been asking, um, um, trying to ask uh, for more than a year, uh, could we have access to the Harpoon missile? There, uh, for to enhance our deterrence, and, and if deterrence doesn't work. Uh, to uh, defense, and we kept saying, no, don't, don't even ask. We don't have the votes in the Congress. Don't ask, and therefore you'll spare both of us and uh, and, and embarrass our, uh, our raising your expectations and your expectations being dashed. Finally. Saudi Arabia's patience wore thin, and China drove its truck right through that gap of mistrust and uncertainty of intention there, and provided Saudi Arabia the CSS-2, so-called East Wind, uh, there which could hit Tehran, if it was accurate, 3,000 miles, much more threatening than the Harpoon missile there. So. China got an enormous strategic advantage. We had a bloody nose, and the U.S. ambassador was uh, asked to leave. A deemed persona non grata, because the United States lectured Saudi Arabia for the audacity, the mendacity of your inviting godless atheist communist China to come to your defense as opposed to still working with us to try to find some way out of this crisis. So yes, China has had leverage, it's, it's used it, and we have uh, been caught... Um, not as effective as we would like to be seen, Colonel De Roche.
3: Thank you. Um, So, uh, let me put a first off, just as Dr. Anthony says, China is not the preferred military partner in the Gulf. Generally uh, partners in the Gulf only buy military equipment from China if it is denied to the United States. The CSS2 is one, Uh, the um, uh, Wing Loon drone, uh, when uh, we refuse to sell armed drones, and people forget this, the United States actually is very restrictive on weapons uh, sales. Um, We refuse to sell armed drones to our partners, so both the UAE and Saudi Arabia bought the Wing Loon Chinese drone. Uh, The Chinese have recently provided lasers to be used in an anti-drone defense uh, to um, certain forces in the Gulf who are regretting their purchase already. The only country that explicitly, and um, because of fears of sanctions we've seen uh, 155mm howitzers and rounds uh, sold to the Saudis. Uh, In large part I would think, although nobody's explicitly told me, because members of Congress were saying we need to sanction, stop providing weapons, so they wanted to have a source of artillery that was not subject to uh, sanctions uh, by the US government. The one exception, the one uh, nation that I know of that, um, in the Gulf at least, that buys Chinese weaponry um, without that, without being denied it previously, is Kuwait, who quite frankly says, our national existence has depended once on the acquiescence of the UN Security Council, and we are going to buy weapons from all the permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, for a political thing. Right. On the harpoon, let me dispute you a bit. Um, Ironically enough, Saudi Arabia here paid for the sins of the Iranians. Uh, When the Iranian revolution occurred, uh, we had transferred Harpoon to the Iranians before the Saudis asked for it. And then we saw a regime change in Iran, and a Harpoon was used against the USS Samuel B. Morse, which was unable to return to service after that. And so a restrictive policy came in because the United States government does not navigate towards the optimal solution. What it does is it veers away from the last disaster. And the last disaster was what was seen as um, uh, careless provision of advanced weaponry to what was regarded as one of our most reliable allies in Iran. And then you had regime change. And so then we decided to not provide that advanced stuff. And unfortunately, that led to the situation as you describe it. Final question, and this is a good one to end on. What role should the US play in improving military, uh, military conduct? of Arab militaries. So we're talking about conduct here, not capabilities. Brigadier Nawaf, let's start with you.
0: Conduct Conduct as in...
3: How they conduct operations and I believe it also refers to uh, respect for human rights and uh, uh, conformance with the rule of warfare.
0: Well I think what the United States is doing with a lot of the Arab states, Arab countries, whether in the Middle East or North Africa, uh, training uh, continuing to uh, explore uh, ways of education and doctrine uh, disseminating a lot of that information is a good start and I think that should continue uh, with cooperation with those countries now these varies for instance uh, you know countries uh, that have uh, systems and laws and i can speak only for the state of qatar that has a lot of humanitarian laws that have been updated in the past 5 and 10 years greatly that reflect on each aspect of the government including uh, the military uh, some countries may need to explore uh, to develop their own humanitarian uh, laws as well but i think the united states should uh, continue in cooperation and training and exercise education is the best uh, best uh, remedy for uh, most
1: well, I think I guess if you look at the question closely, I think first I have to define what is a good conduct. First, we have to agree on a good conduct. Uh, we can't just uh, tell somebody to do something and we, we do something else. I mean, uh, in, in general, the uh, the Arab countries and I've worked with uh, most of the Gulf states uh, in uh, military military cooperation. And they all have. Uh, I mean, the same uh, aspiration, the same thing we do. We all uh, do training. We uh, have pretty much the same mission as uh, we have the same same equipment. So it's. Uh, um, and it's all about training. Well, the, we, what, what distinguishes the United States from the rest is training. We we train a lot. We we, we train daily. We train uh, on an individual level. We train at the at the uh, unit level, unit all the way to division levels. Uh, we train during the day, during the night. We say we United States own the night because we can operate uh, at night. Most of the uh, other countries, uh, even recently, we saw Russia. Obviously, you see Russia. I don't think they have trained uh, lately before they crossed borders to Ukraine. That was the nothing. It wasn't a coherent uh, attack. It uh, uh, wasn't a coherent attack against Ukraine. So it's uh, um, and in, in war things happen. Uh, I don't think there is a policy in the Arab countries that to do bad conduct. There is no such thing. But uh, there, you, you'll have some units or some people will do bad conduct. Uh, so I think at the end of the day is uh, uh, it's uh, uh, transparency and 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 joint training at the individual level and at the unit level uh, uh, all participants will will uh, will share a common conduct and whatever it, it is that co- good conduct
3: is. So. I, agree. I agree with both of those. Um, I would point out that in some people there's a false distinction between military capability and issues such as corruption and human rights and all that but when you're dealing with a democracy like the United States as your security partner uh, eventually you cannot keep those issues separate and what we saw with the Afghanistan withdrawal for example was the 20 year military commitment eventually people said okay when's the corruption going to end? When are we going to see an?" improved human rights situation and ultimately the lack of reform on human rights governance and anti-corruption in Afghanistan created an environment where it was possible to just withdraw in a humiliating manner. I apologize to all those whose questions we didn't get to, but please can we hear it for the panelists and for Dr. Anthony.